Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by HBO and the documentary series The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sunday at 8, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for March 12, 2015. The Is It Dear Ali or Dear Ayatollah or Dear Mullah edition? I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here in Washington, D.C. We're all together, but not all of us are the same people. So next to me is John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News. Hello, John. Hello, David. And making her GabFest debut, since Emily Bazelon is on vacation, is Slate's own Betsy Woodruff, who, what's your title? You're a political writer? A staff, staff writer. Staff writer. Welcome. Welcome to the GabFest. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted. So you, you probably should answer some questions. What questions do we have for Betsy? What's your favorite dessert? Um, I would say chocolate cheesecake with raspberries on it. Hmm. That is not. That's, that's kind of my go Is that cheesecake covered by chocolate or cheesecake no, made I of chocolate? No, I wouldn't like the ingredient. I wouldn't like you cut it in half and it's chocolate on the Okay. Ugh. Not, that would not be, that is not, I don't want to come to dessert. That's ridiculous. It's wrong. <laughs> it's like so cheesecake. good. All right. Who, what politician would you least like to sit next to on a cross-country flight? That's hard. Um, probably <laughs> Alan Grayson. He just seems kind of like a sad person. And I feel like, uh. Sort of, sort of the airport uh, colleague who would be likely to unload and maybe overshare. Huh, that was good. Yeah. Who about you, John? Mm-hmm. John will say, not answer say, that. What Watch John living or dead? What living or dead? No, living or dead. Oh, that's good. <laughs> now you don't have to hurt the feelings see, of someone. Uh, no, no, that's quite about, good. Yeah. Thank you for providing me with that escape route. But my problem is the people I would think of. Sometimes you want to like get inside the weirdness of the people that were. I don't think I think Anthony Weiner probably no. Yeah, I think you know I think even though I think he was probably you know an underrated president, uh, he couldn't be overrated. Jimmy Carter, I just don't think oh. he, would, he would be so <laughs> sanctimonious and oh, actually, boring. That's, I, I I actually oddly enough had a conversation with somebody who was in this condition was on a flight back across uh, the Atlantic Ocean with Jimmy Carter and said it was delightful. And, fun, and this is a Republican. Wow. Is this right. a, a normal person? Yeah, quite normal. Quite All right. Normal. Withdrawn. Um, quite normal and, and not ideologically in any way on the Carter team and said he was, uh, he was kind and interesting and not right. talk okay. just the right amount. Okay. And yeah, All right. Yeah. All right. I'm not sold. I still don't buy it. It's <laughs> good to know. Uh, all right. On this week's GabFest, we will talk about plane flights of all sorts. No, the Senate Republicans wrote a letter probably because they don't know how to send email, I don't know, to Iran. We will talk about that letter and what it means. And in other uh, moronic correspondence news, we will talk about Hillary Clinton's incredibly, well, I'm not sure what the right adjective, evasive press conference about her email fiasco. And then in stupidity that dwarfs even the stupidity of Hillary Clinton and her email or the Republican's letter, we will talk about the racist dirtbags at SAE at the University of Oklahoma and what the terrible videos that came out there mean for, I don't know, for the world or something. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, John Dickerson's best life hacks. They're going to be so good. Some of you have asked us about our live show coming up at the Bell House in New York on April 8th. I'm sorry to say that show is sold out. I mean, I'm happy to say it's sold out. I'm sorry for you to say that it's sold out. I suppose it's possible some tickets will free up, but it's slate.com slash GabFestNYC. At the moment, we are sold out. So uh, those of you who got tickets, we can't wait to see you there. 47 Republican senators this week sent a letter to the leaders of Iran 
in an effort to derail the nuclear negotiations underway in Switzerland about what will happen to Iran's nuclear enrichment program. The letter, which was drafted by rookie Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, purports to be educational for Iran's leaders, teaching them about the American system. It's kind of like a schoolhouse rock letter for them. Um, but teaching the deal doesn't really matter unless Congress legislatively ratifies it, and it will only last as long as the current president is office. The next president will be able to do whatever he or she wants with this agreement that is reached. Betsy, what is the purpose of this letter? Who was the audience for it? I, I don't want to be too cynical about this because I'm just trying not to be the person who immediately ha takes the most cynical explanation possible of things that people do in D.C. But I mean, I can't imagine the Iranians were like, oh, wow, so this is how the American government system works. This is so helpful. Like, I don't think that's the case. Like, this plays incredibly well with the Republican base. Anytime you say anything bad about Iran, anytime you go after them, anytime you're critical, you, you can't be too hardline. If you're a Republican and you vote, you are excited when you see the people that you elect being upset about Iran. And, you know, this letter is incredibly smart if that's what they're going for. John, do you agree with that? The purpose is basically base fluffing? <laughs> um, yes, in a both a direct way and an indirect way, and we can talk about this later. But, um, I mean, the fact that a freshman senator can send a letter like this and have it get 46 cosigners and have it land uh, in, the, in the news cycle and, and control a few news cycles is itself an extraordinary thing and, and relies in part on the fact that the Republican base right now, and I think Dan Dresner wrote about this, you know, since Ted Cruz, if you look at um, Republican freshman senators who have skyrocketed through the ranks, it's a relatively recent development because it used to be that you made your name not through the green room but the cloakroom and you had to kind of work within the system and then you were elevated and you became a committee chairman and committee chairman had power and then those, as a committee chair, you, you know, Jesse Helms, incredibly powerful in, the, in, the government, in both controlling Republicans and Democrats as presidents when he was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, he would, he was, and the Reagan administration people will tell you, he was a total nightmare to deal with. But it was, as a committee chair, much different. He'd been there a long time. Tom Cotton just here. But in Republican politics right now, being a bomb thrower, even as a senator, is more valuable, much, much, much more valuable than being a committee chair. Everybody's talking about Tom Cotton this week, not Bob Corker. Bob Corker's doing it the old-fashioned way, getting Democrat and the smarter way. But why um, smarter? In what sense smarter? Because I think in the end of the day, if you're going to overturn the president's agreement with Iran, you want to have Democrats on board, and you're going to need them fit just as a numerical thing. You're going to need them to override. And this is really a question about. By the way, it's not about ratifying a treaty or an agreement, which they can't say yay or nay on. But it's whether Congress takes away uh, the president's ability to lift the sanctions, which would be a condition of the deal. So let's say Congress either imposes new sanctions or denies the president the ability to remove the sanctions. The president would veto that legislation. Then you'd need sixty-seven. So you need Democrats, and there are plenty of Democrats there. And all they need to do is be brought along, and that's what Corker was doing. This, of course, turns this into a partisan thing. You start to lose Democrats. It becomes a partisan fight. And then there are all kinds of longer term damaging uh, aspects of that as well. So, Betsy, when you look at the sort of young, more junior Republican senators, so you have Cotton, who's done this. Ted Cruz has, of course, had an excellent record as, as a stager of public theater. Marco Rubio a little bit. Who are the others? I don't know if I'd put Rubio in that category. I feel like Rubio is, is one of the less theatrical ones. Like, okay. he's, he's really good at talking. I think of any of the potential 2016ers, Rubio is the best at just saying what he thinks about things and not sounding stupid. I don't know that he's ever had a gaffe. Um, he just doesn't strike me as theatrical, but Ted Cruz, obviously, yeah. And then, you know, most of the House Republican caucus is obviously in that category, too. So Tom Cotton, what is he gaining out of this? He obviously has this moment of, of uh, extreme celebrity. And where, where, what is he going to play? How is he going to play this? He's establishing himself as both incredibly hawkish on foreign policy and also as incredibly influential among Capitol Hill Republicans. So that's exactly what he wants. I think, I think you can't overstate the extent to which Cotton is extremely strategic and extremely deliberate about literally everything that he's done in his entire political career. He's been incredibly successful. He, he served, what, one term in the House before getting elected to a Senate seat that was kind of a gimme without having a primary challenger. I mean, talk about someone who has ascended incredibly quickly with very little resistance. It's, just, it's really a remarkable thing. And doesn't owe him, oh, doesn't owe his rise to anyone so he can go do his own thing. Owes his rise mostly to playing it by his own um, wits. Now, why did he get 47 senators, to, 46 senators to sign along with him, including some 
like John McCain, who um, who probably should have known better, is that um, they're ticked off that the president is basically negotiating a deal here and, and giving them no input and not keeping them in line. And so they're like, there's this deal being negotiated. It's going to be delivered to us as a fait accompli in which we can't actually change. So we're angry and we want to like rattle the cage a little and get our views right. heard. So John, do you, you are, you're somebody who is, who's acutely sensitive or not sensitive. That's not the right word. And implies that sen- you are I'm feeling, very, you yourself are feeling, but you're, you're acutely uh, knowledgeable about the way the, the, the sort of rituals and rites of, of Washington and the sense of what is proper behavior and what isn't. So there's much made by Biden, by Kerry, by the president himself, right. like that this is outrageous that yeah. they would send this. This is a breach. Yeah. No, this is I, new. You know, I don't understand that at all. Yeah. Why is it a breach? The, these are – they are American legislators. They have a position. They have a, a message that they want to convey. In what possible sense is this something which is which is in, in any way goes against – either their political interests or the nation's interests. Well, I think when you start trying to – if you take the letter at its face and believe that it's actually an, an, uh, a legitimate attempt to negotiate with Iran, you're subverting the structure of the government the way it's supposed to work, which is that the president and the State Department are supposed to do the business of these negotiations. And, and this, the legislators have their say through their well, methods, but basically the way the system is set well, up the is the president – don't have their say. They don't in some things. I mean, they don't, they don't have their say. Well, I guess two things. One, they don't have their say when the president, like, decides to bomb and invade countries. They could have more of a say than they assert, and they don't even assert that. I mean, they oftentimes just let the president go off and do his thing. They so often both in tell custom, the president to do his thing and not ask him. Right, exactly. So by custom and law, by even just the structural way of the system works, the president has more power in this area. Yeah, but see, I guess – So, like, I they guess, can do I budgets. As, as somebody who is so unhappy with the, with the fectlessness and, and impotence of Congress, and the fact that Congress doesn't do anything. Yeah, but – like, And that, the, and that Congress you, is right? so busy ceding uh, power to the executive all the time. I agree, but, they, but they're only doing why? this totally selectively. So like in for a penny, in for a pound. So if you're going to only do it in this time, which is a breach of protocol, a breach of the way things have been done, then you've got to suck it up and like take, it, take responsibility for all the stuff you're not doing. And that's – you can't just decide to do it and be given the weight – that you think they should be given when they're only doing it in this kind of opportune moment. So I would I would give a counterpoint to this, which is um, Dan Dresner had a really great piece of the Washington Post right after Boehner invited, invited Netanyahu to come give a speech without running by the White House. And Dresner's argument is that, of course, that's a breach of protocol for the Speaker of the House to invite a foreign leader to address Congress without the White House signing off. Of course, that's nuts. And I think we can put this letter in the same category. But the point that Dresner makes is that this is 100 percent a two-way street. He, he talks about a spiral model of trolling of how the White House and Congress are both going around each other and not working together and not helping each other out. You have the fact that uh, the president normalized relations with Cuba basically without going through Congress whatsoever. That's a dramatic foreign policy change. You'd think that wouldn't have been done largely in backdoor non-congressional settings. You have the president you know, making deals with China without congressional insight or congressional involvement. So it's not as simple as Congress sucks and Congress is destroying all this great history, you know, and, and the president is sort of a passive victim. Like this is very much a two-way street. This is really a team effort. But the way the system is set up, he has more power in this area than they do. So, for example, in a budget, the president's budget is always DOA when it gets to Congress. And you could say, why is that? That's terrible. In a system, his budget should have as much power as the other guys. But it doesn't. In budgeting, the Congress has the power and then he has his role to play when he has his role to play. In this case, in foreign policy, he has the primary role and they have a secondary role. So, so do you think the president then and this, and this is not an accusatory question. I'm just curious. Do you think the president... Make an overs- accusatory question. <laughs> Come okay, on. you rhino. <laughs> so do you think the president then should have deferred to Congress on DHS funding? Like if we're going to say Congress has the power of the person, I mean, that's, you sound like you're a red state, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But if we're saying, you know, this is protocol, this is history, Congress has the power of the purse, Congress determines funding for this stuff, then shouldn't the president out of deference to the system for the good of the system have said, well, they're not giving me money for what I'm doing. So I guess we're not going to have the executive action on immigration. Again, no, question. they, they, the, well, he has his role to play when he has his role to play, which is he can veto whatever they pass. And that's, so you, they have their roles. I mean, he wouldn't have been, he, he was taking his role when his time came to have it. So I don't know that the analogies are the same or that the analogy works because. Yeah, I mean, Congress could have sent him. Yeah, right. could have sent him a bill to veto, but, but they the, didn't bother. Or, but by the same, but by that same 
line of argument, Congress can send a letter to Iran. They can do that. That's Oh, they definitely can do it. It's just a question of whether, I mean, both as a matter of custom, but also as a matter of being effective, this is totally massively backfired. Well, is it? That's a question. So let's go to the substance of this. Does this make a deal more or less likely? Uh, I think it makes it more likely. Uh, and this is another Dresner argument, which is that... Stop talking about this guy Dresner. <laughs> Dresner is not on the show. Let's just plagiarize his argument. Okay. I'm just going to put... This is just an argument that I came up brilliantly on my own because I'm a Iran expert. Basically, I think it makes it more likely because it's Republicans saying, guess what? If you guys don't get this figured out in the next two years, you're boned. No deal. So I think it's incredibly helpful for, for expediting the negotiations process. And, and the down the downside of the what it does to negotiations is if there's a pro, if if negotiations fall apart, if anybody buys the idea that they fell apart because of this meddling, if you're the United States, you want a deal that falls apart to be all Iran's fault. You want it to be all their fault because you're dealing with not only the other members of the P5, but you want basically the rest of the global community, which is important to keep the sanctions severe. So that even if U.S. sanctions are severe, they can't find a, a route to the to the Russians or the Chinese or somebody else. You know, it's, so you want them all to think like this was all Russia's fault. I mean, this was all Iran's fault. And to the extent that this could create a condition where Iran would have backed out, I'm not. I don't. I don't know really that since Iran didn't take the letter seriously, I guess it can't use it now as a as a stalking horse for why they got out of the deal. You know, it's a fun fact about Iran and their global community is that they have a uh, an embassy in Ireland. Because Ireland isn't part of NATO, and they just have fairly, you know, comparatively healthy relations, which I did not know until earlier well, today. I mean, I one thing that's important about this is this is not a bilateral negotiation between the United States and Iran. It's a it's a multilateral negotiation. There are five other major powers that are participating, and will if there's a deal, will be there to ratify and lift whatever sanctions they're lifting. And so, the thing that I guess Republicans are rightly afraid of is that you get a deal. There's a huge uh, economic gain for Iran and these other countries are sticking to it. And so that even if the president – even if there's a new president in 2017 who's a Republican president, it will be very hard to sort of undo what's been done in Iran's favor. Do you think a Republican president at this point would have to yeah. – let's say – would have to undo a deal? I think, yeah. And I, I mean, to- I think they have to pledge to the minute – I mean, every Republican candidate will pledge to undo this deal the minute it's signed. There's no way, unless the deal, which is not going to happen, the deal is all centrifuges off, can't turn them on for 20 years, which is not going to be the deal. You think Rand Paul is going to pledge to immediately turn the deal off? No, that's a good there point. There could be a President Paul, I'm just saying. <laughs> He's the happen. president of the ballroom. If there's a ballroom <laughs> somewhere, he will <laughs> be president. Happen. You know who's a fun, uh, interesting... No, that's Re- a great point. You know, it, it, he might not. You know who's a fun, interesting Republican in this whole conversation is Jeff Flake from Arizona, who is sort of like the anti-Tom Cotton. I just think anytime there's something interesting going on with foreign policy, Jeff Flake is doing the opposite of what you would expect. Right, because, and he's also part of the Gang of Eight. Right, part of, part of the immigration Gang of Eight helped negotiate the release of Alan Gross, the Cuban prisoner, helped with normalizing Cuban relations, hasn't signed on to this letter, you know, told an Arizona paper that he thought the letter process was inappropriate. Um, he, he basically, he seems to agree with Rand Paul on pretty much everything about foreign policy, but he doesn't wave his arms over mm-hmm. his head like a crazy person. He, he doesn't advertise himself aggressively as this counterforce on foreign policy in the right. GOP, which is probably because he's a smart human being. But his place in this sort of a group of people is very fascinating to me. Interesting. All right. The Jeff Flake Show. GabFest is sponsored this week by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO. And it is filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. The series exposes long-buried information discovered during a seven-year reporting investigation of unsolved crimes. And it was made with the cooperation of Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence and remains a free man today. The Jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind the fantastic documentary Capturing the Freedmans. Durst came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, a fictional account of Durst's life, starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. Second topic, the Hillary Clinton email fiasco, week two. 
John, you because you weren't on the show last week. Emily and I, Emily and I had went after this, but you haven't had a chance to go after it on the show. This you went week. after it, meaning you went after each other. No, or? no, no. We, we, we. I think we generally were agreed, but we missed your, we missed oh. the, the the Dickersonian interpretation of the uh-huh. events because we had we had week one of Hillary last week, and now we have week two. This week she held a curt press conference on Tuesday, explaining her behavior, her email behavior, her email habits as Secretary of State declaring that she has deleted the 30,000-odd personal emails that she's received, but will turn over and make public all of her professional emails. She also insisted that she never emailed classified information and expressed vague regret about having carried this out. Uh, So, uh, John, has this been diffused now that she's given her her explanation and, you know, said, here, I'm making these public. The rest, they were just about yoga. Yeah. So out of 60,000 roughly emails, 31,000 were about yoga and 30 were official. The 31,000 have been deleted. I would say that's probably like that's the normal ratio, yoga that's ratio very... for for Hana. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. about one in every two is about yoga. I would say texting, one in every two is about yoga. Yeah. Well, we don't. We haven't even gotten into the texting about Bikram yoga with Hillary Clinton. Apparently yeah. the phone was melting with hot yoga. With hot um, yoga. Yeah. You know, I think this comes up again when the State Department emails are ultimately released. I think it comes up again when the Senate, when the, when the House investigators do their thing with Benghazi and look at the emails that she did turn over, uh, and it comes up in the general election. It won't. I don't think it comes up in the in the primary for her. And and obviously, press stories will continue to dog her. You know, already the assertions, some of the assertions she made in the press conference came under challenge. She ducked a lot of questions in the press conference. Which been... what is, what's come under challenge? Which so well, the one most kind of social media ready was her claim that she did. Well, first of all, she said she just wanted to have one phone instead of two phones. So which other cabinet officials who had an existing email beforehand just put that existing email on their single phone for the Department of Transportation, for example. So she could have done that. So her argument that it was like only one phone or two phones. The other thing is she didn't just get like keep her old emails. She had on a whole like server. She had her own thing. She also misstated the governing law at the moment, which was in 2009 that if she had emails, they were to be kept on the system within the department. And so her argument was, well, she just ducked that whole thing. And then she said, but I went through a process and my process was um, to turn over everything that could possibly have been of interest and I deleted everything else that wasn't. So it was essentially a system set up to capture everything has been replaced by her system and we just have to trust her that she did what she said she would do. Another reason that this was extremely an extremely socially media friendly and, or in her oh, case yeah. – poor choice is because a couple of weeks ago, I think she did an interview where she said she had like four phones. She's like, ha ha ha. I love, I love, you know, phones and iPads and stuff. They're so great. I have a whole bunch of them. So it's just like, oh, for goodness sakes, you know, you of all human beings are the most disciplined person, most aware of how you're perceived, most aware of like, hey, we have three days to plan a press conference. What's one thing I could say that would be really stupid, right? This is not a Hillary Clinton thing. This is like, you expect this kind of thing from Rand Paul, right? You expect this kind of thing from like some freshman congressman, you expect this from Aaron Schock, not from somebody who's been in the public eye in a way that's very disciplined and responsible for literally decades. It's just like it's goofy. I imagine the Yakety Yak song playing in the background (laughs) for a lot of it. And I think the reason that's, I think, politically an important point is that, so this is about trust. Do you trust what she did in the case? And then do you trust her explanation? And trust is, you know, an important thing when it comes to presidents. It's weird. Some of the Hillary defenders have said that to claim it's about trust is, um, is somehow crazy. But I mean, when somebody makes an assertion for which there is no proof, they're saying, you got to trust me. And the reason this, that footage is so damning, in other words, her saying, I only wanted to have one phone for convenience, and then two weeks ago saying, I have both an iPad and a BlackBerry, is that those two pieces of footage appear in the same loop, and it's an immediate refutation of a claim. So it's like, you don't have to wait a lot. You know, you don't have to like do a lot of chasing of things. You just see her saying two totally contradicting things right next to each other. Now, the one, she has two phones now. She could argue that she only had one phone then. But you don't want to be in that position as a candidate. Especially when you're basing your entire defense for putting sensitive State Department emails on a server in your backyard. When you're basing your entire defense for that. Was on, it in their backyard? Uh, yeah, it was, it was in their property. Yeah. yeah. When you're basing your entire defense for I that on people. In the, inside the house. Let her finish her uh, sentence. We can just fact check that later. And you're on your property, right? Your home. And you're basing your entire defense for putting sensitive emails in that place on people needing to trust you. Yeah. And then a second later, you say, you know, herp derp, I don't want to have two phones. Do, but trust me. 
Do you guys think that the outrage and scandal as it continues will be about the emails that continue to exist and will be made public or the ones that are, have vanished? Do you the think fantasy. It, the fantasy, know, like what was it? 19 email? minutes I mean, of you, tape. Yeah. Do you think that that's where it's going to focus? Or is it going to be, or just people are just going to dive into the ones that are professionally there? Or will it just I be think, about the behavior, the I overall think, structure? I think the disappeared ones are going to be a problem because it looks very Clintonian to just, you know, disappear these emails and then say, trust me, there's nothing important. Right. It's all yoga. I promise. I'm right about this. Like, that just looks bad and there's nothing Clinton can do to defend herself on I that. wonder if they, you know, if they're going to forensically try to recover them. I wonder maybe, how maybe, deleted yeah, well, they are. Hey, you know what? To the server, and she's maybe, not going to let anybody get to the server. Maybe North Korea has them. <laughs> maybe Anonymous has them. She has them on a server that like, is protected by the guys who drive cars into the White House be- or when they're not sleeping with Cartagenan prostitutes. Here's the, <laughs> here's the thing that, again, it's about trust. So her whole claim is, trust me. But then if you look at the claims she made, there's not only the thing about the one funds, two funds. But she also, her her when people said, well, you know, you weren't supposed to go through your own server. You're supposed to have everything inside the system. Um, And she said, well, no, that was just like every other employee. I made a choice about what was personal and what was private. But every other employee with them, the presumption is that that everything is being retained because it's – the presumption is everything is being done through the system. So there may be a few odd cases where you – an employee – like like a handful of cases where an employee has to make a decision one way or the other. But they are allowed to do that because the system is set up and you play by the rules in the system that everything is captured. So for her to say, oh, I'm just like every other employee – Elides the the point that she did that she created her own system in the first place, and I guess that kind of it's not even a lawyerly answer. It's a total it's a total hoodwinking. When you come down to the technical legalism, and I don't want to get into this, she may well what she did may well not have broken the law or even the State Department rules. I don't know. I don't even want to get into that. But it's clear, <laughs> even in two thousand nine. What she was doing, if you if you told me this is what Hillary Clinton is doing, I would have told you this is a really stupid yeah, idea. Right. This is a bad – why was there not – why is there not in her universe someone who told her this is a very poor idea? Why, John? Well, I don't, I, th- I don't know. This is total, total massive speculation. A, somebody could have told her. That was one of the questions she ducked at the press conference where you told that this was not a thing you could do. She did not answer that. I think you could imagine a couple of scenarios. One is – here are the rules, and somebody said, here are the rules, and then you can choose to ignore them, but I've told them to you. Now, why wasn't there somebody on her staff? Because you could argue, you could imagine somebody on the staff saying, geez, we got to find a way to get these e- – get have con- more control over our lives than the bureaucracy lets us. So let's find all the ways to do that. I mean this is – you know, when, when President Clinton was president, they were told not to write in your journal about things you did officially because those could be subpoenaed. So there was a – there was a kind of conditioning that – you know, you want to have as much as you can walled off from the vast right-wing conspiracy. And she was living in the world not as we'd like it to be, which is everybody being transparent, but is the world as it is, which is your political enemies are going to come after you. So I'm going to try and have control as much as possible. Should have just used Snapchat. <laughs> right, right. I don't think it was around 2009. But Betsy, like as a, as a person, you may not be as, as immersed in this universe doesn't the very fact that either no one told her or that if they did – her intimates did tell her, she ignored it. Aren't those both kind of incredibly damning? Yes. There's about, not about there's her. not an answer that isn't a disaster. And I think the other thing that's really interesting when we talk about the email scandal is that the larger scandal and the larger problem for her might be the Clinton Foundation stuff. Right. When you talk about 30,000 emails disappearing – during the time period when Clinton was simultaneously doing diplomacy with foreign governments and taking significant sums of money from foreign governments for her charity, there's tons of questions about that. Like there's massive conflicts of interest there. And and the fact that she was simultaneously engaged in that behavior while having total control over so much of her communication and basically zero accountability, that looks awful. That looks terrible. Like there's not there's not an easy way out of that. Also when she expressed regret, it was regret over having made the choice for convenience, not because it was the wrong thing to do and it was against the spirit of the Obama administration and it was against the spirit of the moment, which was that the Bush administration was getting um, savaged for having private email accounts and also that it was against the regulations of the State Department, but that she regretted the fact that she now had to deal with this fuss because she'd made that convenience choice earlier. So it was not exactly uh, the normal route for these kinds of moments of contrition where you are sort of abject and hope that that 
gets you out of it. It's the I'm sorry if you feel that yeah. way apology. Does the House, I mean, because there's now about, I think there are exactly 24 different committees that are now investigating this. <laughs> Every single House member is now actually heading a committee that's investigating this uh, this email. But it, do they have a way to get to the server? I mean, they've obviously subpoenaed all the State Department mails, and they're demanding that. But can they subpoena? Uh, can, does Congress have the right to subpoena I, all of this stuff? I wonder. I'm, uh, I mean, I'm jumping in here, but... Um, Let's imagine if they had one government email on them, is it like fruit of the poison tree? Is the entire server – can you go through the entire server based on the fact that it had a single government email that you would um, have a right to go look at as a congressional investigator? It seems to me yes. It seems to me they have every right to go look at that. Yeah. Uh, because they can't just take her word for it. They'd never take anybody else's word for it on any other matter right. of record, right? They would use subpoenas and so forth. So, And by the way, also subpoena whoever sat there and hit delete for the 31,000. Surely it wasn't her, right? It was some lawyer who she told, you know, delete everything about, I mean, even the most benign interpretation of this, delete, delete every- everything about Yoko or yeah. my secret plan to get funded by the North Korean government. Right. <laughs> All the personal stuff. Betsy, last question to you. So do you believe this is just going to linger and linger and linger as her campaign starts? I think so, yeah. I think there's tons of people who have major invested interests in this lingering. And also, it's a great story, and it's nuts, and it's interesting, and there's tons of room for drip, drip, drip for new stuff to come out. You know, if you're a reporter covering Clinton and you don't get some sort of scooplet on Clinton's emails, you know, that's, that's sad. So I think, I think definitely. Let's go on to our last dismal topic. Oh, my God. So the fraternity SAE in – the University of Oklahoma video, of course, emerged this week of several members, perhaps their sorority dates on a bus, singing like as vile a racist chant as you can imagine. You you already know what it is now. You've, you're a human being living in America. The adults in at the University of Oklahoma and the, the sort of fraternity national headquarters reacted quickly and I think rightly to the video. University of Oklahoma shut down. I forget what they did, but they shut down the chapter, took the house. Expelled some kids. Expelled a couple of kids. And the national frat, they got rid of the chapter also. Yeah. The national frat said this is bad. Uh, SAE's had other various kind of dismal racial incidents in its past. This chapter had had no black members for 14 years. And I don't know. John, you were – you're a frat guy. You were in a frat. Like is that – That is it, not an anomaly. That is not an anomaly. Yeah, there was an amazing article I read. I can't remember if it was in the stuff that Tark sent around about that there basically is no – no one has any good demographic information about the composition of fraternities. So we don't know whether fraternities and sororities are as, like, as monoracial as they would appear. Yeah, but, well, I mean, it also depends. There are southern schools and northern schools, and the fraternities are different. Um, but it's not – there's nothing about this story or the composition of this individual SAE house that is unfamiliar to – Were you SAE? Are you, no, no. No, different. Were you, are you a, were you a sorority member? No. no. Did you go to a school which had lots of frats and sorties? My school did have. I think – I forget if we were 40 or 60 percent Greek, um, but I wasn't. I always thought about pledging and then I just felt like, oh, I have to go back three days early. It's going to be a pain. So, so John, you know, when the UVA, uh, you know, bogus UVA rape story emerged, you and I both were very skeptical. turned out justifiably. You know, no skepticism is warranted in this case. This right. was like, you know, just like evil dumbassery at the highest highest level. Why do you think this persists? Oh. Well, huh. One is the self-sorting, right? You're just not around. You wouldn't – nobody could do that if you had African-American members of the fraternity in it. I guess that's not true. You could imagine some strange – I mean, but – But no, I mean – But that's largely – be hard that's, to that's do it. That's largely true. Also, there is the reverence for the founding behavior of a fraternity that was founded in like – that comes out of the South and the Southern right, tradition. It's a, pre, so, it's, a pre, it's a pre-Civil War fraternity. Right. Southern um, pre-Civil War fraternity. I think also some people are horrible. What's so gross about this is the collective glee. It's a lot of people. It's a whole bus full of people in glee, with like glee. That's what's so gross. That's, but, I mean, well, you could – there are many things that are gross, but – I don't know. If you discovered, Betsy, let us say we, you discovered that a, uh, there was a film of a frat house and there was lots of discussion. And it was like really grotesque sexual comments about women and, and neighboring sorority at the most graphic level. You don't want to be surprised by that. Like Definitely everyone would – you would expect right. that behavior, right? That's basically yeah. – that behavior. This one I found just really surprising because you think that 
like that kind of like really overt, really public, grotesque racism has. I mean, I just I don't know. I guess I'm naive. I thought that that had, that was gone. No, which isn't to say just to save you from yourself that racism isn't still out there and in lots of places. But right. that celebratory right. song it's, singing, it's, everybody it's joining private in, like, and it's like well you know, it's educated the tech- people in front of a camera. Right. Well, then I think <laughs> or, probably or had they, they didn't want to be in front of a camera. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay, fair. But it was yeah. being recorded, so um, in a in a phone rich environment. I think there is in in some quarters a very strong and energetic backlash to the perceived pc police um we saw this with gamergate you know over the past few months not at all to you know say that gamergate is on the same scale as frat boys celebrating lynching i think there's a significant sector of the population that feels very oppressed and very aggrieved by the fact that you know there's you know there's a lot of words that you shouldn't say, right? There's a lot of stuff that you shouldn't talk about. There are things that are very ugly that we as a civilized society don't do. Gamergate and uh, and this video, not the same on a moral level, um, not the same on a content level, but I think I think there's a comparable instinct there, maybe. Um, and I don't say this as somebody who knows anybody at the, at the university. I haven't talked to any of these kids. But uh, I think I think this backlash and this really this excitement to sort of be un PC in a way that's aggressive and sometimes you know in this case violent, that is not an impulse that surprises me. I guess it does surprise me around race in this blatant way. Again, I do, like I'm never surprised at the dress up at blackface parties. Like those always seem like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at the kind of mocking or or like like one's appropriation and mocking of black culture by white fraternities, which happens every year. But this just seems like this kind of like very. I mean, this is this is like 1930s behavior. This is 19. This is. How could this exist in a post-civil rights world? I don't even – I really don't get it. Where, where are you on your First Amendment views on this, which is – What do you mean? Shouldn't, well, shouldn't people be allowed to say dumb, stupid, horrible things because – Yeah, and then we should make fun of them and right, mock yeah, them. Yeah. And, and, oh, but I and guess like, in terms the, of a sanction. But, but in, oh, terms of, the, in terms no, of expulsion. Be, well, there's certainly – there's no the, – the, as a fraternity, the fraternity has no – Fraternity has no kind of First Amendment right. rights in that way. The fraternity is just like well, they have a ch- they, their relationship with the university is based on a charter that the, the university can make the terms of that charter yeah. whatever they want. No, know? that seems perfectly legitimate. I don't think the university has to. The university doesn't have to encourage every form of speech, and the, the, these guys have the right to say all this stuff. But that, so that I guess right the point is, if if one of them came to the town square, you know, and uh, do they have town squares at the university, and said this out loud. What would a university do then? Or I think also, was it appropriate for the university to expel them? Yeah. Given that's First I mean. Amendment concerns? Yeah, that's what I mean. If they were just saying it out loud and like, that's all they were doing. And there wasn't the like, huh. it wasn't on film and wasn't, it wasn't on video and it wasn't this big national thing. I just wonder if the response wouldn't have been different, maybe. I don't know. I'm not, I don't have, yeah, I mean, I guess I I, really the understand. expulsion I don't, the expulsion I'm, ambivalent about i don't i'm not sure it may be wrong to expel them and i also think that and and this is i would love your thoughts on this john because you're so good on these forgiveness questions who do we hold responsible and and who do we forgive like how what does it take for these kids to be forgiven because they've committed like obviously they've done something unbelievably stupid and evil but they haven't killed anyone they've like they've done something stupid and evil it's not a crime It's it's stupid and evil what is it that they have to do to be forgiven and and should they be forgiven right well that right I mean, well, since I'm a big fan of forgiveness, um, um, although this is a tough, this is a tough case. But as you point out, they they haven't killed anybody. What worries me more about this is not the forgiveness, but the fact that that many people on a bus could think that was. I mean, obviously, somebody didn't think it was okay, and they filmed it, and they used that as a way to. So, not everybody on the bus was singing the same thing, but like people, they don't know their history. I mean, I think the point about the sense of aggrie- being aggrieved and the pushing back against PC is, is, is exactly right. But I think – but this is a special place, a special word and a special event they're talking about in, Amer- in American life. And to not know that – I mean the words shouldn't even be able to come out of your mouth, literally. Right. I mean it should, it should yeah. catch in your throat. Yeah. It, you should – that – and that's a problem. That's not about forgiveness. That's about somebody's not learning – and also, by the way, I don't – I mean, yeah. And also in the wake of um, – you know, we've been having lots of conversations with the 
um, with our kids about Selma and explaining it to them and, you know, the look of horror on my daughter's face when you explain just the lightest details about what happened when men kneel to pray and are hit in the head with a with a nightstick and have dogs turned on them. Like, that's the revulsion that people should feel instantaneously when these things are, are mentioned. And, th- and the fact that that doesn't exist, I don't, you know, I don't know how you fix that. I have one thought. So, so clearly the, one of the problems here is that these persist as monoracial institutions, right. particularly that you have white frats. I mean the black frat issue is another issue which let's not get into because it has aspects of this, of this but it's, it's different. But if I were a university, here's the first thing I would do. I would insist that as a condition of being a licensed fraternity at our campus, you must collect demographic information about your – members and it must be published like this public shaming and mm-hmm. knowledge about this and so that w- if you're going to be here you're going to acknowledge exactly how monoracial you are and i don't think i think it, mm-hmm. that sunlight is very very effective in this i don't that- think institutions survive very well when they appear to be as lily white as they, these guys are and that would also be super easy because greek organizations have composite photos they take every year where they take yeah. a picture of every single member of the fraternity put it on a you know frame it put it on the wall of the house like every frat house in america has these it's not hard to walk through eyeball them and you know right. figure out if, if this is a monoracial institution or not so it's not like you'd be asking people to bend over backwards to get this information you're asking them to like look at a picture and right. count and, and the university would publish it and would say you know like sae is 99.7 percent and in fact for the last you know 10 years 99 and I, I think that would go a long way to to it would not be compelling the these institutions to actually change what they are but it would it would make them hyper alert to that and that would be something that they would adjust to why do you think? I mean, John, when you were were the were the frats at UVA totally the white frats totally white, mm-hmm. and w- when people talked about that, how did they articulate why that was the case? You must it must have been you must have been aware of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was like it was seen, I guess, as an extension of. I mean, this is in the most like favorable, like you know, the same way. Certain, you know, African-American kids would all sit together in the lunchroom and so they have their African-American fraternities and their other fraternities and that's like – it's just kind of the way people self-select when they socialize and that's it. Like in other words, the institutions are the things that are enforcing a a monoracial existence. Do you see what I'm saying? Leave leave the doors open to two houses and people will self-select and Uh go into the houses Uh as opposed to the doors are closed for one race in one house and, you know, so that would – I, I'm riffing here. I, I, I think. Did people talk about it? No. I think that's probably why this video is so powerful too, because if because your your assumption and the basic assumption would be that these fraternities are monoracial because they self-select, and if it wasn't a fraternity, all these white guys would still be hanging out with each other as a bunch of white guys, and the fraternity reflects reality rather than uh, enforcing it. But in this video, you have them saying there can't be any African-Americans right, in our right, fraternity. Right, right. <laughs> so it suggests that the, the monoracial nature of these fraternities is prescriptive rather than descriptive, which is, which is like, yikes. That's a very good point. That's a good – let's end on that. So let's go to cocktail chatter. I want I, – you know, when you're doing a keg stand back at, uh, back at whatever, tri, tri-kappa. <laughs> Triglycerida. Triglycerida. <laughs> uh, what, what are you going to chatter about, John? I'm going to chatter about your, um, your favorite sport, baseball. Oh, good. I'm going to just check my email. While you, yeah. <laughs> you know, I found this um, this quote. You must know the F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald quote about baseball. Which there are is, no second innings no, in, no, no, in game, American baseball. A game played by idiots for morons. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I bet, you'll, I bet you'll like that. No, I was listening to um, the great courses, uh, Turning Points in American History, which we, which we love because they sponsor the Whistle Stop um, podcast. But uh, this one was on the birth of baseball. And this is, but you should pay attention. Because, I'm paying attention I'm because, paying attention. Um, first of all, it's funny that you don't like baseball because it's like a basically it's a city based game, you know, and like out of New York, and and you're just kind of like an urban city guy. I mean, you're not like a. Well, I thought, it, isn't the Bar Giamatti thing that it's pastoral? That it is the pastoral. Sport there's of part of that life? too. Yeah, but it grew up in the cities. I mean, yes, there's a whole. Um, if there but, were stickball leagues, I might. Re- Cheer for that. Yeah, if well, you could like hit before, it off. A you want to be car. in a rounders league or something. Um, anyway, so but but because you've raised this issue before about what's cheating and what's not in the early days of baseball, there was a huge debate about whether it was fair to throw a curveball. Oh yeah. And so Walt Whitman, um, writing about baseball, he asked, "Is it the rule 
that the fellow who pitches the ball aims to pitch in such a way that the batter cannot hit it, gives it a twist, whatnot, so it slides off or won't be struck fairly. And so when he is that a poem or is that a like no, it's no. a letter to a, it was a letter you're, to a guy. You're articulating no. it as though it yeah, might have been. Well, I think verse. he wrote in poems. I mean, I think when that guy brushed his teeth, it was poetical. But anyway, when he was told yes, that was the thing, he said, "The wolf, the snake, the cur, the sneak, all seem entered into the modern sportsman." Though I ought not to say that, for the snake is snake because he's born so, and man the snake. For other reasons, it may be said. So the curveball basically goes back to original sin for him. But then I bring it closer. When you throw an apple, I think it, you, can, <laughs> you can get a wicked curve on that. I bring it. Uh, I bring it even closer to home for you, which is that Charles w- uh, William Eliot, the president of Harvard, uh, an institution you attended, heard that that his team. Ha- well, the story A may be apocryphal. B may be true in part, but not in whole. But the, the story, as I've cobbled it together from a few different sources, is is either he heard that the Harvard team won, or this was the reason for ending baseball or arguing it should be ended at base at um, Harvard when the when the team was successful. He said, "Well, this year I'm told the team did well because one pitcher had a fine curveball. I understand that a curveball is thrown with a deliberate attempt to deceive. Surely, this is not an ability we should want to foster at Harvard." <laughs> So, you know, um, I think you might That's fantastic. be more interested in baseball than you think uh, because it has that rich history of trying to figure out the very question you've asked many times before. Um, what constitutes cheating? I think the, 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 by that's the appropriate standard. Of, well, I, I won't even get into it. All right, <laughs> Betsy, <laughs> what's your chatter? Top that. Uh, man, it's going to be tough. Um, my chatter is that this is an important month because it was 25 years ago this month that one of the simultaneously greatest and most egregiously underrated films of our time was released. That film is Joe versus the Volcano. It's not only the best Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie. It's not only one of the best romantic comedies by any objective standard. It's one of the best movies of the last 30 years, in my opinion. It's fantastic. I've watched it. Wait, is it by any objective standard well, or in your opinion? Yeah, I know. Which one? You were doing so well. And then <laughs> in my opinion, by any objective standard. Yes, there we, there go. we go. There we go. Um, it's a fantastic movie. I've probably watched it over the course of my life maybe 10 times. My dad loves this movie. When, uh, you know, if I've ever got a new boyfriend home, my dad wants him to watch Joe versus the Volcano and gauge the reaction. Uh, this is true. I'm not making this up. <laughs> and, um, and it's been a pretty good indicator, you know? Really? Uh, What's yeah. the, what is proper, what is winning the, boyfriend the, behavior? The proper moment? reaction is to say this is a fantastic movie and I noticed this symbolism and this symbolism. What, what, was the, what, uh, what did someone fail on? Um, I don't think we've had many significant failures. It's more just kind of an enthusiasm gauge. Oh, okay. So nice. it's, it's a great movie. It's really, really good. All right. Very funny. It has a great soundtrack. I've never seen it. Rewards rewatching. Is it su- is it suitable for uh, what is the what is it rated? Is I think it it's PG? PG or PG thirteen. All right, we'll mm. force the kids huh. to watch that. That's a good idea. It has also a great opening credit sequence. One of the best opening credit sequences that I know. Huh. I I, I never knew this. All right. Good to know. So my chatter is. Um, I, even though I now work at Atlas Obscure, I try not to log roll too much for Atlas Obscure, but I saw something that was so great this week that I had to chatter about it. So there, we did a feature um, a while ago called Statues We Love to Hate that I just came across, and it, it's just amazing statues, like a statue at Czechoslovakia of two men who are, like, peeing together on a map of Czechoslovakia. There's another one, which is a boy riding a turtle, but it really looks like the boy is fucking the turtle. So... There's another one that was in front of New York City Hall, which was a man stomping out vice and corruption. It's like a big naked statue of a naked man stamping out vice and corruption. But vice and corruption are two women. So it's like oh. this man just <laughs> stomping the hell out of these two women. And they finally like had to, they had to move it uh, from New York City's Hall. But my favorite one, which is I think is the ugliest piece of art in the United States, is a statue of General Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, it was put up in a Confederate flag park outside of Nashville. Does this honor. park still exist? What's that? Does this park still exist? The park still exists. The park is pretty new, although I, I couldn't tell from the article whether the park continues to be a Confederate flag park or is now just a park. So it was a it was a Confederate park that was established very recently, and they put up the statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was a who was a great Confederate general, who's also one of the monsters of American history. So he was he committed the terrible massacre of black civilians at Fort Pillow, and he also. Um, 
he also founded the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> but it's a statue of such astounding, hideous ugliness. It was it was done. It was I, if it, if you had set out to make a statue that would that would embarrass Nathan Bedford Forrest, which this, they did not do that. They set out to make a statue that would honor Nathan Bedford Forrest. But if you'd set out to make a statue that would embarrass him, you couldn't have done better than with this statue. So I strongly will try to post a photo of it on the page. But this statue is like like the ugliest thing you'll ever see. And it's great that it's of such an evil man. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Tark is writing a letter to Kim Jong-un explaining the offsides role in soccer. Our producer is Mike Volo. He is writing to Vladimir Putin, gently disputing his claim that you can't end a sentence with a preposition. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. He dashed off an email to ISIS disproving the myth that Mikey died from eating Pop Rocks and Coke. Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate Podcast, sent an email to the Taliban explaining that Donald Trump. Our show is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate GabFest. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest and iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Betsy Woodruff, first-time Gabfester, come back many times more. And John Dickerson, 1,000th time (laughs) Gabfester, don't come back anymore. That's right. That's it. I'm David Plotz. I think Emily's gone again next week. And we'll have another delightful guest. We'll talk to you then. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.